Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. The story is one that is all too common, and each time that it happens, it is absolutely a tragedy. But it happens, or the conclusion occurs, in various ways. For some, it's the student who's raised in the church, who goes to Bible class, attends worship, and then that student goes away to to college and some professor with more degrees than you can shake a stick at begins to pound away at how silly the Bible is and how it's just a book of fairy tales and how what he continually calls settled science has disproven this book of lies and fairy tales and contradictions. For others, it's a similar ending, but it happens much earlier than that. It's a student who goes to school and then comes home and maybe jumps on social media. And at both places, they see people they admire. Maybe it's a friend at school or maybe it's a celebrity they enjoy following online. But they continually talk about how the Bible is outdated. It's out of touch with history. It's misogynistic. It's homophobic. It's transphobic. It's oppressive. It's cruel. And frankly, it's downright boring. And for others, more people than we would like to admit... It's the adult who's gone to church his or her whole life, but who then faces a horrible tragedy. Maybe a spouse leaves them completely out of the blue. Maybe a business fails. Maybe a storm destroys their home or their business. Maybe a child dies. But it's a time of grief and tragedy that a faith that maybe was already shaky a little bit is is destroyed because this person just does not understand how a loving and caring and compassionate and powerful God could ever let something like that happen in his or her life. In the end, there are other ways that these things can happen, but they all lead to one tragic ending. And it's one more person who no longer trusts the Bible for some particular reason. Just as some will live their life and fall in these categories, what's interesting is what will then happen to them. Some will live their life and not say anything. Others will continue to go to church, but they just won't really be involved. They won't really put on anything. They will just continue to look like a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, they'll just act as if the book is just a a nice moral book, but it's not for them in their everyday life. Others will go completely the other direction and spend their life attacking the Scriptures as a backward book that's out of touch with people in this day and time, a book that that even hurts people because of what it teaches. And every time it happens, our hearts should break. But tonight I want us all to understand that you can trust the Bible. That's not always to say that it's easy to trust the Bible. 
Because anyone who has tried to follow Scripture for any length of time knows that there are certain parts of the Bible that are difficult to obey and difficult to understand. There are certain things in Scripture that go against what I might want. There are certainly things in Scripture that go against what our culture might say or culture might want. And our culture is really good. The culture around us is at painting its side as loving and compassionate and Scripture's side as cruel and oppressive and backward. This month on Sunday nights, we're spending some time thinking about the the broader subject of apologetics. And we're calling our monthly series a focus on a reasonable faith. Folks, we do not believe blindly. We do not believe, hopefully, just because we've been told by our parents or our grandparents to believe. Hopefully, we don't believe just because we live in a, a small southern town that still has some biblical principles. We believe, I hope, because we have every reason to believe. And that includes our belief in Scripture. We could, if we wanted to tonight, spend all night long listing reasons why we can believe the Bible. But I want to do tonight is something very simple. It's more of a survey type lesson. Because I want to do tonight is give you evidence from four different areas just to whet your appetite to study some of these things on your own. To make certain that you understand that we can believe Scripture. And these are four areas that are varied, but that show us that the book that you and I hold and read and study and believe and live by really is what it claims to be. The Scripture that Brother John read a few moments ago inspired God-breathed the Scriptures. First of all, I want us to consider evidence from the Bible itself. Throughout the years, Scripture has been attacked in so many ways, you know that. And one of the most common ways is is to just throw out the, the, the idea that, yeah, this is a good book. But there are so many discrepancies, there are so many contradictions in the Bible. In other words, many spout the idea that the Bible contradicts itself, and so it cannot be the product of a perfect, intelligent being known as God. It is interesting that about a week ago, in fact, a website, Salon.com, published an article that the name of it was, How Can the Bible be written so badly. And their conclusion was, because it was not written by deity. Now, if you're sitting there tonight and you've got your cell phone or your tablet, you may have like got Google out and said, let me find this article. You want to know the rest of the story? Two days later, the website had to take the article down. Would you like to know why? It was written so badly. They had so many mistakes in the article that they, they repulled their own article about the mistakes in the Bible. You cannot find, I actually looked this afternoon one more time to make sure it's not there anymore. But it may be a popular attack on the Bible. But the question becomes, can any of these alleged contradictions hold water? Of course, we would believe the answer is no. That's not to say that everything in the Bible is easy to understand. There are times where we read something in Scripture and it may prick our thinking and make us think, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like it jibes with something else. And we have to study, we have to have those skills of, of thought and reason and rationality. And there are many of them. Let me give you just a couple that have been given over the years out of dozens and dozens. Some go back to the old argument of where did Cain find a wife? 
Right in Genesis chapter one, you have it clearly stated in those first two chapters of the book of Genesis that God created mankind and the focus is on Adam and Eve and their children. But then in Genesis chapter four, when Cain is driven away and becomes a wanderer, a vagabond, the text says, we're told he found a wife, but not in Eden, not anywhere near Eden and over in the land that's called Nod. And so some suggest and have over the years that the Bible contradicts itself because certainly God had to have created other people for Cain to find a wife. Well, the answer is very reasonable from the text. It just takes a little study. First of all, consider Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4 that tells us that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And of course, that Adam lived to a vast old age, over 900 years. But also consider the punishment that God gave Cain. You recall when Cain killed his brother Abel, that God gave a punishment, but he also gave some grace, did he not? Genesis 4.15, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Let me ask the question, who's this anyone who would kill Cain? Who, who is it? He killed his brother and all that's left. If people would say this is right, all that's left is Adam and Eve, right? And there had to be other people. Cain lived a long time. In fact, many scholars suggest that he was nearly a hundred years of age when he killed his brother. Seth, excuse me, Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Assuming Cain lived to even remotely vast age, there were plenty of women. Yes, they would have been sisters, daughters of Adam and Eve, to choose from a wife. We try to place our values back then, our way of life back then. It doesn't make sense, but you read the text, it makes perfect sense. Let me share another one that I didn't realize was a contradiction in some people's mind, and so I was actually studying for this lesson. And it's... The fact that the Bible makes marriage seem like a good thing. In fact, God created all things good. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But then you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and some say, well, Paul there makes it sound like marriage is a terrible thing. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 7 at least four times in that chapter, if you don't read in the context, it could seem as if Paul is saying, don't you ever think about getting married. For example, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. In other words, unmarried, because Paul was unmarried. Verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. And down in verse 26 of the same chapter, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And Paul would say that includes being single. And so some suggest what well, Paul then is saying that marriage is a bad thing, and God said marriage is a good thing. Well, folks, not if we read the context. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Paul makes it clear he's answering some very specific questions that the church in Corinth had sent to him. Now, we're not told specifically why they had sent this particular question about a man not being with his wife, but something had led to that. But also in 1 Corinthians 7, down in verse 26, Paul makes it clear that the church was facing what he calls there this present distress. And again, the text does not tell us what that was. Some suggest it was oppression by the Roman emperor Nero against Christians. We can't be certain, but whatever the case was, these Christians had something that was pressing in on them, distressing them in their faith. And Paul was basically giving wise counsel that in the face of what they were going through at that time, it would be preferable if they were married to stay married, if they were single to stay single, and so on and so forth, during the time of this present distress. There is no disagreement among the Bible that marriage is, is good, that marriage is honorable, Hebrews 13, 4, but also that marriage is practical. And so Paul was writing a practical instruction for a specific time, a specific situation, 
for that specific congregation. Now, those, I will admit, are two that are quite simple to understand and see how they can get blown out of proportion, but also how we can simply respond to them. But I share those two to remind us that no matter what someone says, oh, that book you're reading, that just has all types of contradictions. The proof is in the pudding. The simple response is, please share one. Because of all the hundreds that have been given over the years, not a single one withstands simple study and rational thought. You can trust the Bible. And the Bible itself is evidence of that. But I would suggest to you also, you can trust the Bible because of evidence from archaeology. You ever consider the fact that the Bible, of how many different things on this earth, specific things on this earth the Bible mentions? It's, it's, it's utterly fascinating how many different people groups, nations, civilizations, cities, regions, countries, bodies of water. It's staggering how many specific things are mentioned. We are given a glimpse into the way of life of people from the highest levels of society. You might think of the pharaohs of Egypt and Nebuchadnezzar and others, all the way down to those who are outcast and destitute in society, such as lepers and others. But since the Bible goes all the way back to the very origins of human history, there are many people and many practices that over the years, skeptics have said, well, there's no way those people ever existed. There's no way that city ever existed. None of that stuff ever happened. And yet archaeologists are some of the Bible students' best friends. Because constantly over the years, all these things that people said, well, that never happened. We haven't found any evidence of that. Well, the spade and the brush and the other things archaeologists used have proven those things to be true. One of the more famous examples is, as you see on the screens already, the, the nation of the Hittites. The Old Testament regularly speaks about that nation. It was one of the nations that the people were supposed to drive out when they went into the promised land. Joshua chapter 11 speaks about that. You may also recall that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was Uriah the Hittite. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, you come across that nation's name several times. But for centuries, the Hittite nation was one of a point of contention for skeptics because there was not a trace of that entire civilization. We couldn't find anything, no city, no, no reference of it outside of the Bible, no reference whatsoever. And so people continually just badgered Christians for believing a book that would make up literally an entire civilization. That is until 1906 when a man named Hugo Winkler was doing some excavation in the country we now know as Turkey. And made a huge discovery of temples and clay tablets and even more than that. And upon deciphering those clay tablets, it became clear that what he had discovered was a city named uh, something I can't pronounce properly, probably uh, Hattusha, which was the capital city of the relocated Hittites. Today, we found even more. I was telling someone some time ago, we were studying this matter, that now we can almost tell you what the Hittites ate for lunch. We, we know everything about them, basically. And it's laughable that anyone ever questioned the Bible on that matter. Oh, but there are others. Another example is the man known to us as Pilate or Pontius Pilate. It was until quite recently that there was any evidence outside the Bible that that man ever existed. But you and I know him well. 
He is such a central figure in those last hours and days of the life of Christ before the crucifixion. We even have sermons specifically not about him, but focusing on his words and his interaction with Christ. And we base so much of of what we think about those last days of Jesus before the cross on this man Pilate. But there was zero evidence of him. So people said he was just a figment of the imagination, just a character in a play, if you want to think of it that way. Well, that was until 1961. When an archaeological team in Italy was working in a region known as Caesarea and unearthed a stone tablet that should be on the screens here in a moment. There it is. And while I can't read that and you can't either, (laughs) those who can read those things tell me that the words that tablet read Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judah, which is nearly word for word what you read in Luke chapter three and verse one. What's interesting about this tablet is this tablet is not Luke chapter three. It's simply a historical document that lists him. And since then, other discoveries have been made, not only to prove to us, not only that someone named Pilate lived, but more and more about his life. One of the more interesting ones is about King David. Maybe you've heard of King David. For nearly 3,000 years, there was no proof outside of the Bible that King David ever lived. And so what it became was David was a mythological figure. I mean, think about it. He killed giants. He went from nothing to the kingship. And since he's such a center point of the biblical story, then the the, the argument became they're basing this whole belief on a mythological figure. Someone who just can't be real. Until 1993, when that little piece of an obelisk or a tablet was found that referenced Ben-Hadad defeating, quote, one of the house... Of David. And since then, much more has been found about him. There are hundreds of others. But you can trust your Bible. And yes, it is true that there are still some cities and people groups and nations and so forth that are mentioned in the Bible that, that archaeologists have not uncovered. But for the, t- the attacks to continue simply do not make sense. Because continually these things are found that show that all of these people groups, nations, cities, regions, and so forth, are not just real, but are dead on accurate with how the Bible presents them to us. You can trust your Bible. I also want to remind us that you can trust your Bible because of evidence from history. I won't take a long time on this point. But what I mean by this is the sheer endurance of the Bible is proof that you can trust it. Think through your own minds. Of how often throughout history the Bible has, people have tried to, excuse me, destroy the Bible in certain nations or even from the entire world. And yet not only is it still around, but it is still the best selling book every single week of every single year around the world. You may say, wait a minute. I've seen those lists, those bestseller lists. I walk in bookstores and I never see the Bible at number one or two or three or four. You ever thought about why? Some of you may be old enough to remember the days when newspapers printed the bestseller list and the Bible was always listed number one. Number one, the Holy Bible. Then number two might be some new novel or something else. And some of you might remember that after newspapers had done that literally for decades, they got tired of printing the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible every single week. And so there was a stretch of time where those same lists were printed But with an asterisk. And at the bottom of that list would be a notation that said something like this. It is assumed that the Bible is always 
the number one bestseller. But in our secular world, we simply have dropped the asterisks and it's not listed. But you look at numbers, real numbers. The Bible is continually the best-selling book constantly, every week of every year. And that's despite countless attempts to destroy it. Some of you will remember very well the example of the burning of the Bible in Nazi Germany as a way to root out its influence and unite the people in a state-first mentality. But may I simply ask today, where is the Nazi party? And while Germany is not a nation filled with New Testament Christians, the Bible is still read and preached and practiced by so many there. There are others, and I've hit the button too early, who've made arrogant claims to destroy the Bible throughout the years. And they've proven not only failures, but miserable failures. Maybe the most famous or infamous was the man known to history as Voltaire. That was the pen name of a French writer, Francois Arour. And he was so steadfastly opposed to the Bible that he took a copy tied it to the tail of a donkey, drug it through the town of Paris, the city of Paris, to the city dump and set it on fire. And his arrogance was so great that just prior to his death, he made the claim that his writings and the writings of others who were influenced by him would be the death of the influence of the Bible within a hundred years of his passing. He passed in 1778. Very few have ever heard of him outside of maybe studying literary history or philosophical history. But amazingly, not only is the Bible still here, but many of you know that for a long stretch of time, Voltaire's own house and office was used to print Bibles. John Clifford's famous poem comes to mind. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. When looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he. Then said with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word for ages skeptics blows have beat upon. Yet through the noise, excuse me, yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer is gone. You can trust your Bible for the simple reason that it's still here and continues to sell and be read and circulated. And then number four, you can trust your Bible because of evidence from science. The Bible is not a science book, but it's attacked constantly from the world of science, maybe more than any other angle. But every time the Bible speaks to a scientific matter, it proves not only to be true, but it proves to be Decades, if not centuries, ahead of its time. There are countless examples of this. Some we shared in a sermon a few months ago, and I'll actually mention a couple more next Sunday night in a a specific study. But let me share three just quickly as a way to, to underline this point. One is found in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, where Moses wrote, For the life is the flesh, excuse me, the, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, you know, as well as I do, that it was not until the days of William Harvey that people understood the circulation of the blood. But amazingly, doctors and scientists are still to our day figuring out just how true it is that life depends on the blood, that life is in the blood. We've known that's true for a while, but just how true, we're still uncovering it. Of course, blood contains a lot of things. One of them, red blood cells. But did you know that each one of those red blood cells carries about 270 million molecules of hemoglobin. 
helps with oxygen flow, the right consistency of blood. And did you know that if that number were reduced, even 10%, that you and I literally could die from sneezing because our body could not handle the blood that would come through from that one simple act. The life is in the blood. That's one small example of that. How could Moses... Somebody just went, I need to cough. <laughs> I'm scared to cough. Now. You're okay. You have hemoglobin. You're all right. How could Moses have known that all those years ago when we're still uncovering it and figuring out all that that means? One of the more curious ones, and you're going to be glad you came to church on a Sunday night for this one, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23 about the covering of human excrement or waste. And you're going, I can't believe he's saying this from the pulpit. Neither can he. Um, but especially when times were, when the people were in camp, you recall the command was given that they were to go outside the camp, take a trowel, and to cover the waste. And the reason is that nothing unholy would be among the people. But even today, in certain parts of our world, is this not a problem? That we cannot teach people and train people to do these certain simple, what we would call sanitary things. Think about the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, with the Black Plague or the Black Death. One of the reasons that spread so rapidly across especially Europe was a failure to follow this simple type of sanitation. How did Moses know that 3,500 years ago? One more that I think is the most fascinating of any of the three we'll think about tonight is in Numbers chapter 19, where you read about a very curious command in the law of Moses about the water of purification. It was water that was to be used by the priests after they had performed one of their sacrifices that dealt obviously with blood. But the ingredients are what's odd. You read Numbers chapter 19, and the ingredients are the ashes of a red heifer, cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. You and I read that and we think, that's the most bizarre text in the entire Old Testament until we understand what's going on. When you put ashes through water, you basically get lye soap. And the other ingredients... Uh, hyssop and cedar wood and so forth also have antiseptic qualities. And so when the priests were finished working with sacrifices, working with blood, don't you know they needed to use a, they needed some germex. Okay. They needed what we have. They didn't have those sorts of things, but they had the water of purification. In fact, a book written several years ago called none of these diseases written by two physicians actually said that if you take this concoction and add a couple of modern chemicals to it, you almost come up with the exact formula for lava soap. It's remarkable how that happens. But here's my question. Why didn't Moses just use his Egyptian background to say, here's some medical dealings with what you need to do? Now, the Egyptians were advanced in their day. We, we have no doubt about that. Building the pyramids and so on and so forth is remarkable. Their mathematics were remarkable for their day and time. Their medicinal practices, not so much. I won't go into a lot of their practices because I want to eat in a few minutes. But just as an example of re remembering Moses was raised in all the ways of the Egyptians, did you realize that the Egyptians felt that Pus was such a good thing that they would actually intentionally infect a wound to get more of it. Anybody want to go to them for the next surgery? Neither do I. 
And yet Moses raised in that background comes to Numbers chapter 19 and says, when you work with blood, which can be very unsanitary, you make this bizarre concoction that we now know is exactly how you get rid of germs. And you're disinfected from that work. It's remarkable. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens found throughout Scripture to remind us that you can trust your Bible. There are so many other things. And there are things in the Bible I will never fully comprehend. But the more I learn, the more I trust the Bible. Not less. I trust it more. But tonight, we've shared just a handful of the countless reasons. But I want to close very briefly by reminding us of why we would have a lesson like this. Folks, we don't have a sermon like this just to increase our knowledge. It's good to know these things. But we don't do these things just to be smarter. We also don't do these things, listen to how I'm wearing this very carefully, we don't do these things just to appreciate the Bible more. We do these things because if the Bible is from God, and if the Bible is to be trusted, it must be trusted with our all. And I want to give us every reason possible to make certain that we trust the Bible with our all. You can trust it, but we must open it. We must read it. We must study it and we must make it the guidebook for our entire lives. And so that student goes to college. And that professor says, you know, that book, I can't believe anybody with any intelligence whatsoever would believe that book. In fact, my job this semester is to make sure that when this semester is over, you don't believe in God and you don't believe that book. I have no doubt that that student is nervous at that moment. And I have no doubt that that student sits in that chair each day of that semester, when he or she doesn't skip class, but when they sit in that chair each day of that semester, and here's that professor with more degrees than you and I can imagine having, just railing against this book of fairy tales. And is railing against all the contradictions, and how anyone with any rational thought could ever... Believe such a book. I would like to think that a student who is raised here and who is raised in a home where the Bible was central could look at that professor and in a very loving but direct way say, You may have the degrees, but I have the truth. Give me the Bible. Yes, it's attacked. Yes, it's out of touch with our modern society. Yes, it's made fun of. Yes, Hollywood hates it. Yes, our larger culture doesn't like it. But my soul hangs on my belief in it. And I won't give it up. Because I can trust it. Not just in this life. But for the hope of the life to come. Give me the Bible. Tonight, do you trust the Bible enough to do what it says.
to entrust your soul to the commandments God gave us through it. To turn from things that separate you from Him based upon your belief. To confess that the central figure of this book, Jesus of Nazareth, really is the one who came to this earth and died just for you. And then to be immersed, baptized, for the forgiveness of those things that separate you from God, those sins. Because that's what the book says to do. Tonight, maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you've done those things weeks or months or years or decades ago. But something is beginning to, to tear at your faith a little bit. And you're beginning to question some things. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to wonder. But maybe tonight you've been reminded that even though I wonder, even though I have questions, even though I don't understand everything, I want to make certain that I entrust my eternal soul to the perfect book. God's holy word. And tonight, maybe he wants to pray with you for forgiveness or for encouragement. And whatever your need is, we invite you to come. We stand and sing to encourage you.